you ain't laughing, you ain't living. If you ain't laughing, you ain't living. I think there's some truth to that statement. Uh, you can gauge. I, th- I don't know where I saw that somewhere this week. Someone kind of gauged, you know, or maybe it was in the documentary that we're going to get into in this episode, was that that's kind of how you gauge a life to a large degree is how much laughing did you do during that, during your time on the planet? Did you laugh a lot or did you laugh a little? And uh, I do think there's some truth to that. I think any of the relationships that I've had in my life that, uh, that have, uh, that have meant a great deal to me, there was a lot of laughter involved and uh, it wasn't just me making them laugh. They made me laugh hard too. And uh, most of my friendships revolve around that. Um, I think a great relationship has a lot of laughter in it. And uh, yeah, I happen to be a comedian and work on a comedy show and do stand up comedy. But I just think in your life in general, um, the more you can find to, to laugh at and, uh, and, and find some humor in, I think your life is just better at the end of the day. You know, I really believe that. And I think it connects you to other people. I think that's how it's one of the truest forms of, of connection and is in a way of feeling a part of something bigger than yourself is to laugh together with other people. And, um, you know, as a comedian, it's an amazing feeling for me every night to be at the center of that and to say something or make a facial expression and have, you know, a thousand people laugh at one time or even have 10 people laugh at one time, you know, is, it's an amazing feeling. And I think it was Seinfeld who said, it feels as good to laugh as it does to make someone laugh. You know, whether you're just receiving the funny thing and you get to laugh at it, or if you're making the funny thing and people get to laugh at it, it feels great going both ways. And uh, that's why I feel so fortunate to have this job, man, just to, to put that out in the world. And I think now more than ever, people need it, you know? You look at the news and you look outside your door and you're seeing people wearing masks and you don't get to see smiles anymore from people and facial expressions. And, um, you know, uh, the laughter has died somewhat, but uh, it's coming back. People don't lose hope. It's coming back uh, in Atlantic Canada here, I think, probably sooner than, than, than anywhere else. It's it's coming back. And uh, and that's a great thing. And hopefully we're turning a corner here now. and. Um, moving into uh, a new phase of our lives where this thing now we've kind of turned the corner and the, hopefully the worst is behind us. I hope so. But uh, we got to get back laughing again, man. It's, it's, uh, it's much needed. I think that's the great thing about, you know, 22 being back on the air for us is the ability to kind of reach out there again and put some laughter out in the world. And, uh, and hopefully folks can, uh, can uh, enjoy it and get some escape from it. And, uh, Realize that we're all not that different. We're all, you know, doing the best we can to try to cope with this. And I think sometimes making the lightest stuff is uh, is the best way to show that and do it. I hope you're good. I hope you're all right. Um, if I didn't say it yet, Happy New Year. Is it too late to say that? When, when can you not say that? If you're busting that out in July, it's probably a bit too much, yeah? You think? Um, but... Uh, it's not. It's still mid-January. So I, you know, I'm still putting it out there to people. And, and if I haven't seen you since the New Year started, not that I have, I got a running list or anything, but yeah, I'm still throwing out uh, Happy New Year to people. So, you know, it is what it is. That's the greeting I'm going with right till I'm going to, I'm going to use it till the end of February. Happy New Year. And see uh, who punches me in the face at some point. Um, I do hope you're well. I want to set up this episode, uh, episode 70 of the generators podcast here on the comedy here off the network podcast network. Um, my guest this week is Peter Brown and uh, Peter Brown worked with CBC radio for a number of years and has made some fantastic documentaries. And he's made a documentary called laughing matters. And it's about the science of laughter. And I got to tell you, uh, we get in this a little bit in, in the discussion too, but like as a person who, who tries to generate laughter, in an audience, I didn't know much about laughter, about the origins of it and the science of laughter. And I, I listened to this documentary. I've got a small, um, 
you know, section in it, maybe about 20 seconds towards the end of the documentary. I'm, I'm actually featured in it, but um, that's not why I listened <laughs> to be honest. Uh, but I learned so much about why we laugh, where it comes from. Um, it was fascinating. It really, really was. He talked to some researchers, some scientists, some comedians. Um, it It's an incredible journey into, into the origins of laughter and the different kinds of laughter we have. And uh, I think you're going to learn a lot in this one. And it's something that, uh, you know, it's a fascinating thing, but when you talk to really smart people who've done a lot of work, you realize that some things that you've taken for granted your whole life, there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff behind those things. And these, uh, this documentary takes the, uh, peels the cover back a little bit and lets you have a look and, uh, yeah, fascinating. I, I, uh, really learned a great deal. I found it very, very interesting. Um, and I think you will too. So I want you to listen to this episode uh, about laughter. And this is Peter, uh, Peter Brown, again, made a fantastic documentary about the science of laughter. So sit back and listen to my conversation with Mr. Peter Brown. All right. Joined by Peter Brown. That looks like for folks who are just listening, Peter is uh, got a backdrop, I'm assuming, or are you currently on a beach in some tropical locale? Well, it's not either or. Um, I am in Alberta quarantine, aka Maui. Right. Uh, I just thought I thought you would enjoy a festive, timely background. As I'm sure, if I took off these earbuds, I could hear Albertans yelling about how mad they are at the government about this these recent excursions when people were told not to excursion. Yes, yes, to excursion. I like that word, to excursion. Yeah, when people cannot go see their family across town, but apparently it's fine to just get on a plane for hours and go to Maui. Apparently that's fine to just head to yeah. Hawaii and, and do your thing. Yeah, that'll uh, induce some anger in folks and voters, yeah. for sure. And Jason Kenney's... Uh, most recent defense was to be fair i didn't tell them specifically so no one has told me specifically not to go to the fancy car dealership and help myself to a jaguar so if you want a car i'm heading over there you're going over anyway because no one's no one's told you specifically not to nope no one has said in so many words, Jaguars are off limits to you. Great point. So I'm in. Great point. Great point. And, you know, I think that opens up a lot of options to most of us, you know, to just go do as we please, because I have not been specifically told not to do said things. So yeah. that's. Uh, you turn off your phone. You the, the It's chaos. The world is wide open to you. All you got to do is have, uh, yeah, no social awareness whatsoever. Be tone deaf to the mood of uh, people around you. And you know what? You can pretty much do what you want. Guilt free. <laughs> For politicians, those are gifts. There is no concern. There is no concern. <laughs> well, I'm glad we're not getting the breeze from those palm trees through your microphone. You sound fantastic. Uh, first of all, uh, Happy New Year. Uh, happy 2021. I hope you enjoyed the holidays. How was it for you? Uh, first of all, Happy New Year to you. Thank Thanks you. for having me on. I like your tree in the background. Appreciate that, I that. presume that's up for the upcoming Christmas. You're one of those early yeah, people. I like to hold on to the, just hold yeah. on to the feeling, you know, just hold yeah. on to the very end. I mean, if someone else can go to Maui or Hawaii, I can keep this thing up for a couple more months. Yeah. That's not, oh, yeah. you know. No one like, told you not to. No one said I couldn't. Yeah. No one said so I couldn't. The, this holiday, like Christmas is usually, and New Year's are usually quiet for me. And this year... It's a weird, tell me if you are finding this, it's a weird time in the pandemic. Like initially in March and April, it was just all adrenaline and stress. Mm -hmm. And I remember pushing a crosswalk light and touching my cheek a block later and just waiting to fall over dead. Like I just was so nervous all the time. And then in the summer, uh, it got calmer as we ran out of adrenaline and there was summery stuff to do and you knew winter was coming. But I'm finding now that we know there's a vaccine. So even if it's months and months away, there is an end in sight. And now it's starting to really kind of sink in and drag me down a little. It's almost like that thing where you're bursting to pee and you run home and you're holding it together and you're holding it together. And once your keys are in your hand, it's like the the urgency level ramps up and it becomes Mm -hmm. very clear. It's going to be half a second either way. Yeah. So I feel like pandemic wise, 
my keys are in my hand. Like now that I know there's an end, I'm, I'm kind of tapping my watch. If I still wore a watch, you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. Yeah. it's still way in the distance, but now that I know it's finite, it's like, well, how finite is it? So I, I was also a bit busy through the fall and then really got to power down. And the difference between not socializing because you're busy with stuff and not socializing because someone told you not to, it's a different, it's a different feeling. So, um, you know, I'm going to dig in and and I'm not going to leave the house unless I have to, but I think it's going to, this, this next six to nine months might even feel longer than the first six to nine months is the long answer to a short question. How are you doing? Yeah, no, I, that actually makes a lot of sense. And what I used to do when I was running um, was if I had to do, you know, I've got five minutes left, I'd actually picture 10 minutes. Mm. The 10 minutes, if I can, I'm like, okay, well, that's that my mind and my body would just change. But if I knew it was just five minutes, man, that five minutes is long. But if I've yeah. tricked myself into thinking it's actually double that, the five minutes isn't as tough. So it's almost like we need to prepare ourselves for actually, let's go, let's lock in for another 12 months of this. Right. You know what I mean? And not think, oh, the summer's going to be, we're all back to normal. Um, but I think the uncertainty is what wears people down. I, I really feel for myself, it's been, if someone can give me an exact time, this is when things are going to happen, but we never know. Like I'm in Halifax, clearly. So we have the Atlantic bubble. Restaurants are open again now. Stores are open. It's reduced capacity. But, you know, so you look around, it looks like life, like business as usual. But for the rest of the country, it's a very, very different story. But I think it's the uncertainty that just kind of erodes your sense of security over time. Yeah. And it's sort of like the way I feel about the uh, Georgia runoffs today. I'm not going to even, I haven't, like there weren't many polls because pollsters were too nervous, but I'm not going to watch it. I'm not going to look at it. When someone texts me that there's a decision, I'll turn on a news channel and and see what it is. But it's going to be three days of a guy at a big map saying, well, if Trump gets 12% of this county, but or not Trump, but if the Republicans get 12% of this county or 19%, and it's just going to be hours and hours of coulds and mites and just so exhausting to to invest any hope in it, you know? Yeah, I know. Well, that's the other thing, too. While we are dealing with this COVID thing and the rest of the world is, America, on top of that, has this erosion going on every yeah. single day for four years. It's just a different story. And so I wonder where the psyche is of the average American who's just like, you know, I just, I just want to feel uh, safe. I just want to know my job's there and my kids are good. And yeah. I can take, you know, like, I, I wonder where they get up every morning or how they sleep at night knowing that the next day the ground is always moving and uncertain so i i feel pretty fortunate to be in canada right now and a canadian yeah is this uh is this a good time to be at 22 or is it a fire hose of stuff to be outraged about um it's an interesting time because of course we're under you know pretty intense covid protocol. So we're all, mm. it looks very different this year in terms of how we produce things and how we all interact or don't interact, you know? Um, so it's been very different in that regard, but there is still no shortage of, of stuff to talk about and comment on, because even though this COVID thing is still in our lives every day in our face, the rest of the world is still doing worldly things. And there's politics to talk about and comment on and the economy and where people are. So we're always trying to get that mix right of like, how much do you address this elephant in the room, but also there's still, you know, other things going on in the world. So we're always trying to find that balance, you know? Yeah. Well, maybe tonight we'll have the ultimate moment of Canadian joy, which is our junior hockey guys, a bunch of oily faced 17 year olds shout singing. Oh, Canada in a tuneless adrenalized chorus. Oh, which is the sound of, (laughs) or maybe they're, Oily face, 17 year olds will sing, Oh, say, can you see? And we'll be miserable. But there will be loud, tuneless shout singing tonight, regardless. Indeed. I remember when the uh, World Juniors were being co hosted in Calgary a number of years ago, and I was walking yeah. downtown. Um, I think by the Weston, I think it was. And uh, I think the US team was staying there, and they got off the bus. And it's, it's as you said, it's the first time I went, Oh shit, these are kids. Like I've been yeah. <laughs> I've been yelling at these guys like to kill and hit that guy. That guy's got acne. That guy yeah. that guy's away from home for Christmas. And I've just been brewing it was the first time I realized, oh yeah, these are children. These are somebody's yeah. children. I'm sending you off to Canada. Like somebody someone's mom in Sweden's like, honey, you, you have your underwear? You got your socks? 
I hope the Canadian boys don't kill you. Good luck. Like just <laughs> sending them off with love and some muffins yeah. she's made, you know, but uh, yeah, hopefully they get it done tonight. The goaltender has been amazing. So uh, yeah. I think if he does what he does, they'll be fine. Yeah. You just have to wait a year to their, till they're millionaires and then you can yell at them all you want. Then exactly. they'll be p- pimply millionaires. Yeah. You can just, you can say what you want and go, you know what? That's okay. But uh, yeah. sorry for the kid next to you. You're like, I apologize yeah. for that. What I just said. Um, I listened to your documentary, sir. And I got to say, I've really been going down the rabbit hole the last couple of years, uh, listening to docs and watching docs and, I love when I tune into one of these things that I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know what the storyline is going to be, what the thread's going to be. Tell folks where you initially got the idea for this, for this documentary. That was so well done, by the way. So congrats on that. Oh, thanks for listening, man. Um, You know, I've been around the world of comedy and laughter for a while. I produced a sketch comedy show on CBC called The Irrelevant Show, and I've done some improv. And I'm I'm not a top-notch improviser. I'm a guy who can sit and watch and go, oh, that's interesting. And I'm a real watcher of all this. Like, I used to be a theater reviewer, and maybe it's because I can express my reactions really quickly. And I've always, you know, when you stop and think about it, laughter is just the most interesting thing. Like I just a few moments come to mind. Like there was a time seven or eight years ago where I had lost a couple of friends. They had passed away in close succession and I was on vacation and some dumb thing happened. And I was laughing so hard. I couldn't breathe. Like there's a picture of me, my wife, as I was sobbing with laughter kindly took a picture of me leaning on a wall because I couldn't even like my spine was failing and that I remember so clearly thinking about how is our la- laughter and crying the same thing like la- a good hard laugh it feels like the same knot in your chest is being screamed out as a good hard cry and I've always been curious about it. And uh, a former colleague of mine who, who now runs uh, the show ideas, uh, Greg Kelly had been, had said to me a few years ago, I did a couple of other documentaries. Would there be anything in laughter in the science of laughter? And I didn't think there was at the time, but I started doing some public speaking about uh, how laughter helps people relieve stress and the, the sort of benefits and how I think it's a really powerful force, making people feel less alone. And just as the pandemic started, I remembered this and he was like, yeah, let's do this. Let's do this do- documentary on laughter. So I went in with two or three really big questions. One is, um, why is it when I hear somebody else laughing hard, I start laughing? Like mm-hmm. what, what is that in, that in, in us? Yeah. Um, what is there a connection between laughing and crying, which the documentary didn't, didn't really get to, but what kind of thing is a laugh? Um, why do we make that sound when we, when we get a, like, I'm assuming from an evolutionary point of view, there must be benefits to this. There must be some, like, otherwise, if we're a species that can't breathe when we're too happy, we're not going to survive. So what are, yeah. How is this good for us? What does it do for us? And I I knew, you know, there were medical benefits about lowers your blood pressure and stuff like that, but that can't be why we evolve the behavior. So I went into this really interested to try to get at those deep questions and not sure that I could. And it, the answers that came back were a really interesting range from like primatologists talking about the way things evolve from chimpanzees and further back uh, mm-hmm. gorillas and um, and orangutans, uh, brain scientists about how a joke works in the brain. Mm-hmm. So for me, as somebody who watches a stand up come on stage with curiosity and tries to figure out before they start talking, is this guy going to be good? Is this woman on top of it? For someone who's been interested in the phenomenon, this was just such a great opportunity to phone experts who were at home because it's pandemic That's right. and talk to them at length about their view of what is this thing that's a laugh. And as you know, because I talked to you, I also talked to a lot of comics about what's a joke and what are the, what are the little bricks in that make uh, the house. That's a joke. Now there was so much material. I had to drop the, the joke structure and, and comedy theory section. I'm hoping to do that again, but it just allowed me 
to talk to experts in the world on what is this behavior that we all want so much Mm -hmm. And that you spend your career generating and studying and looking at the mechanics and that I've spent more time studying than generating, but have been really interested in the structure of for a long time. That's interesting. Yeah. And I, it's funny when you brought up the, the connection between crying and laughing. And the first thing I thought of was, I think in both instances, whatever is happening, whatever we're witnessing or experiencing in that moment, the outside stimulus, it's unlocking something that was already in us. Yeah. Whether that's a memory of, of that made us sad or broke us at one point or something that we've always found curious or interesting ourselves. And then when someone else says it on the outside or it's expressed on the outside, it unlocks that thing in us that causes us to laugh or causes us to cry or get sad. Um, because I've always felt that with stand up in particular, you're connecting with strangers, you're presenting scenarios that may be far fetched to some regard, but there's an element of truth in every single thing that you're saying. And people feel connected in that moment because they think I've had that thought. My dad has done that thing. Or I thought I was at the bank the other day and that thing happened to me. It's like it's this connective tissue that I think is unleashed in that moment. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but yeah, I think that's the central powerful thing about comedy is it tells you you're not alone. Like you stuff you walk past in the world, all the stuff that George Costanza couldn't get past that, yes, he's, you know, all the little irritants or observations that you just kind of swallow or all the frustrations that you think might just be you. And especially these days, feeling less alone is just life changing. Mm-hmm. And it's why, you know, how many times have people said to you after a show, I needed that. Yes. And, you know, Stephen Colbert says the the basic message of his show is you're not crazy. Right. And so I I agree wholeheartedly, I think. And we're and we're wired for it. One of the scientists, uh, neuroscientists in the documentary says that when you hear someone chuckling, even if they don't laugh, the centers in your brain that involve laughter light up for you, that we're wired to share laughter and to, to jump around a little bit. One of the big, one of the theories, one of the kind of little uh, beads on the on the on the necklace uh, that might crack some of this open is uh, there is a theory that in humans at one point laughter became a false alarm signal, so it was a way of taking a stressful situation and you realize it's okay and then and then you release it. Mm-hmm. And you know, you think about we evolved with fight or flight. And our stresses these days, a fight or a flight doesn't help us. So we're we're loaded up with a lot of stress. And if yeah. we can find a way to make that okay, then I, I think it's really cleansing. I've wandered, I should tell you, I'm gonna wander all over the place talking about this all stuff because it was all good. so just yell out a number and I'll know how many times this if you yell one, I'll know, okay, that's the first time I've wandered off the path. I think <laughs> it's gonna be about six. Perfect. I love it. I'm all about it. That's how I live my life, wandering off paths and <laughs> trying to yeah. find my way back to the highway. That's how I live yeah. my life. Um, yeah, I, I think it is it is a connective tissue. And I, I remember back in the, the summer when things opened up again and I was doing some shows at the Laugh Shop in Calgary. And I was a little nervous, I, I got to say, because it had been months since I'd been on stage and I was quite nervous about like, can this thing just go away? This yeah. you know thing you've worked on for 16 years, 15 years. It's like I hadn't done it in, in four months or whatever it was. So it felt I felt like like a newbie going on stage again for the first time. And I remember feeling the tension in the room before the show, before showtime. And then when you get up there and you start talking about the elephant in the room, which is how our lives have all changed. You felt a sense of release from everybody. Everyone Mm. wanted to feel connected in that moment. Everyone was having the same experiences, but wasn't able to kind of get together. And it's one thing to get together with friends and connect. It's another thing to get together with strangers and realize we are not all that different. And I think that came up in the doc, obviously, of like, yeah. we are, we are, we may look different, born, you know, in different parts of the world, um, raised differently, had different religions, different basic values. But at the end of the day, it's like, we're not that different. And I think that's what people feel. Now, all that is subconscious while someone's laughing, they're not thinking about that. But there's a reason why people still want to go to live events. There's a reason why people mm. still want to go to concerts and sing in unison with everybody else or go to a comedy club or a theater and laugh. I think because that subconscious feeling of I'm part of the pack, 
I'm not as alone. I'm not an island by myself. Uh, clearly, I because I've always said that when you drop that last line and everyone laughs, there, there's no greater feeling of connectivity than that for yeah. me as a performer and for an audience to say, we all get it. We're all with you. And I, I don't know. Yeah. I think you've probably felt the same thing, obviously. Yeah. And the and the, the false alarm signal uh, explains some of that, because if you want to tell people this thing that might be dangerous isn't dangerous, you need something that's loud and infectious. Right. So it rips through the pack really fast. Mm-hmm. So it is a it is a hey pack, we're fine. Yeah. Kind of idea. Yeah. Yeah. No need to the other worry. thing that was really powerful for me was um uh I just found the the section about the evolution of laughter and in other animals. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Like uh, all the apes, all the way back 15 million years, dogs, rats, foxes, all have a all have a version of laughter. And the scientists who studied it say, oh, yeah, apes laugh. They don't do a thing that's like a laugh or a pre-laugh. They laugh. And what it is, is it's a play signal in in babies. So if you think about the way you play with a baby, oh, I'm I'm doing peekaboo. I'm pretending to disappear. Mm-hmm. That's a fake danger. Oh, I'm pretending to drop you. And so that partly is a is a false alarm, but it's also partly if you're a wolf pack and you want to learn to run and fight and hunt and run away from things, you need to practice it. Yeah. And the way you practice it is you play, but you have to let the rest of the pack know you're playing. Yes. Um, one of my favorite stories uh, in the documentary was the study about rats who got devocalized. Yeah, I love that one too. That was great. So, so rats, um, rats play. They make a little chirping noise when they laugh. That's above human hearing, but you know there are versions of it that have been uh, the audio has been brought down into our range, and they will uh, play hide and seek with humans, and they'll chirp when they're looking for you. I lived in an apartment that had rats that played hide and seek. (laughs) I had to tell you something, Peter, that was uh, not a good time. And you couldn't hear their laughter. They were probably loving you. All the time playing pranks on me. It was just these rats, you know, but no, sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. So the rats, uh, rats play with each other and they do like play. A lot of play is play fighting. If you think Mm -hmm. about it. Um, but when they disabled the vocal cords in the rats so they couldn't send the signal, I'm messing around, this isn't a fight, the rats who couldn't vocalize got hurt more during play. Right. And that was maybe one of the biggest holy crap moments for me. If yeah. you take the abil- the laughter away from the rats and the ability to signal, we're playing here, the danger of it becomes more real. Yeah. And that was that was huge. I think because that was one of the fascinating parts for me, too, when I listened to the doc and I, and I it's funny you brought that up because I was going to bring it up with you is. Even for us as human beings, we connect with senses of humor, like, you know, if you and I became good oh, friends yeah. and it's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, Pete and I have the same sense of humor. That's a big factor for people to to create bonds and friendships and the opposite is also true. When someone doesn't share your sense of humor, whether it's in a work setting or you're at a, you know, you're at a party back when you could go to those and, uh, and you have a conversation and you can't find that line to, to, to connect with someone on a humorous level, you feel really uncomfortable, you know? So it, it's interesting that these rats kind of just almost ostracized, you know, another member of the pack that couldn't, it couldn't be on the same level they were to them, even though he, it may have been, it just couldn't express it. Yeah. And, and I think about that with people that we know who are far quieter, they're, you know, they're, they're more introverts. They may not kind of like shine that light in a, in a, in a setting with people they're not comfortable of comfortable with how tough that is for them to kind of go and I just I can't I can't just get there I just give me more time you know and I don't know if you see that get that link at all between you know rats in that moment and how we interact now today yeah and it's also linked with the other thing we were saying where laughing together tells you you're not alone mm-hmm. but if everyone finds it funny but you you feel Isolating. more alone. You're that one miserable guy in the club with your arms crossed like that. To me, the image of human unhappiness is sitting with your arms crossed while people around you laugh. Yeah, because it's worse than being alone. It's knowing there's a big connection going on here and it's not involving me. I and so, I mean, I, I know a lot of a lot of performers, uh, and me included, your eye is drawn to that guy. Like, can mm-hmm. I? 
can I connect? And sometimes it's, you're just, you're just being stubborn. And sometimes it's like, Oh, you poor guy. I assume you came here to have, you notice it's a guy. Uh, I assume you came here to have fun and you are just not, Oh man. Like it's, it, it makes me feel uncomfortable even like, um, that great moment in, in Goodfellas where Joe Pesci is, uh, got my funny and my funny in there. And, and just, I, I mean, I, the guys did that in my high school. They all yeah. pretended to be laughing. And then when the kid who was the designated nerd started laughing, they stopped and said, what's so funny. Right. And there's a, there's a cruelty and an exclusion in that. Yeah. That, well, it took 20 minutes, but we got to my unhappy high school years. We did it. <laughs> pew, 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 pew. One. Yeah. So uh, we <laughs> no, but it's it is interesting because I've had that person sitting in the front row with arms folded with a scowl on their face, yeah. and you could have two hundred ninety nine people in that three hundred seat room all buckling with laughter and they're having a great time. And as a performer, you are you are focused on that one guy with his arms folded. But the amazing yeah. thing I found is that quite often after a show, that guy will be one of the first people to come up and go, loved it. Uh, really had a great time, but they just yeah. couldn't express or they don't feel comfortable, you know? So I don't know if that plays a role too, where people sometimes feel, because that came up in the doc as well about vulnerability and about, you know, cause it is, it's, it's a, it's an immense vulnerability to just let yourself go and to laugh. Oh, and to yeah. be Like you have to be, you can't be self-conscious in that moment. You have to be very in the moment and just let yourself go. And some people may have a hard time still doing that, even in a comedy club and with the, the lights down and darkness, Depending on who they're with, maybe they're with folks from work, maybe they're with people they just met, there is, do I put these cards on the table? I remember doing corporate shows. I don't know if you can relate to this with improv, but I remember doing corporate shows for companies. It'll be the middle afternoon in this terrible ballroom in a, in a hotel, you know, with all the lights on, those round banquet tables where a third of the audience is not even facing you. They're still on their Blackberries at the time. And they're looking back at you like, oh, is he still up there? And uh, and uh, I remember like you'd, you'd say the punchline to a joke and people will kind of quickly check in with the CEO of the company or the head table uh. to see if they're laughing. And then that'll tell them if it's OK for them to laugh. Like there's always that tension depending on who you're with. And I wonder yeah. in those situations, who is that guy? And and we make it about us so quickly, right? It's oh, it's about him not digging me. It's like you don't know that guy's life. We don't know what that yeah. guy just left. You know, he could have just had a fight with his his son before he came here. You know, but we make it about us quickly, and then because we're vulnerable up there, so we need everyone to be supporting us. So I, I've always found that fascinating yeah. that uh, that psychology. Yeah, I don't sit at the front when I go to shows because just knowing that I'm visible. I don't want to have to do a little performance of listening in the audience. Like I right. just want to, I just want to listen and I'll laugh and I'll enjoy it. And sometimes I'll be thinking about, I went to see uh, Anthony Jeselnik. Right. And after about 10 minutes, you're just like, so I was so interested in what he was doing. I was almost like I'm sitting with my chin in my, with my hand on my chin right now. And I just wanted to watch him. I didn't want him to see me with a deadpan face. So I don't, I don't sit at the front because I don't want to be that guy. I want to let my face relax and just listen. Uh, I once had a moment, speaking of vulnerable, uh, I moved to England in the mid-80s because I'm super old. Yeah, yeah. And um, Back to the Future had come out here that spring. And there's a line in it. And believe me, this story is going somewhere. This won't count. Um, there's a line in it where Biff says, you better make like a tree and get out of here. Which is funny because it's make like a tree and leave. So I moved to England. Back to the Future is showing. I tell my new friends, we got to go see this. It's great. I'm in a packed movie theater with like 300 people. And he says, you better make like a tree and get out of here. And apparently make like a tree and leave is not a thing in England. <laughs> so I heard my unselfconscious laughter booming off the walls of this room. Yeah. And, and I, the noise I made was hoo hoo ha ha. I didn't know that was my noise. And the next thing I heard was 200, 300 tweed jackets all go as they turned to see what was this guy's problem. And it was, at? it was 35 years ago and I'm not over it Two, 
Two. You know, this this session's going really well. I think you've come a long way with your therapy. And, <laughs> and I think we do need a few more sessions, though. So that's yeah, what are we done? Are we out of time? <laughs> <laughs> I've got a, I've got a three o'clock. So, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I it's really interesting because you're right. We do connect with sense of humor. And I, I don't know if you've had these discussions. I've had numerous discussions with people about the sitcom Seinfeld and a number of people who said, I don't get it. I don't get these characters. Huh. I don't get what people and they they felt isolated. I think because it was such a phenomenon, and they'd heard about how amazing it was. And people were getting. Remember when it was must see TV, and people were mm-hmm. getting gathered to watch the show that came out at this certain time, and and they felt isolated. I think from like no, I don't, I don't understand what the big deal is with this. And so that's the first thing I thought of when you said, you know, when when everyone's in on the joke and you're not, is that sense of isolation? And Seinfeld to me, I think. Put a lot of people on islands where they just couldn't couldn't relate to that sense of humor, you know. Yeah, it was about, uh, e- e- and even more so in uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, it's about uncomfortableness. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, the Ricky Gervais office was so much about uncomfortableness. I mean, I I loved it because it was. Uh, there's a theory of humor called benign violation, where um, it's things are not okay, but they're okay. Right. So George going through the horror and you like covering your face as you watched him try to swap out his girlfriend's answering machine tape. Yes. To me, the release of that was so huge. Yes. And the and the um, let's not kid ourselves. People say these things of it like. Yeah, it's yeah, very interesting. Yeah, it is. It is an interesting thing. And uh, for you, when you went into it to start this doc, did it change any of your preconceptions about about laughter and what it is and what it isn't and where it came from? Were, were, were any things that, that surprised you that you're like, wow, I did not expect it to go there? Uh, a couple things. One is um, there's when we laugh at jokes and we, we're talking about laughter at jokes. That's a very small part of when we laugh mm-hmm. that there was there have been a lot of studies about how friends react to each other when they're just chatting, when they're in the pub or whatever, most of what they're laughing about is not a joke. Yeah. Most of what they're laughing about is, Oh, typical Jeff. Right. Or I bet, I bet Michael wear his hat. Um, and it's, it's like, it's called social or affiliative laughter. And we're, we're 10 times more likely to laugh when we're not alone. And we're even more likely to laugh, uh, Okay, that is my fax machine going off. That is, um, you're in a time machine, so you're It back. goes off only when I'm on Zoom calls that are being recorded. <laughs> it goes off literally once a month. I love it. So um, this social laughter, which, um, I mean, we can talk about the two kinds of laughter because it's interesting where, where our laughter split. That was a big revelation to me, and it made sense of... I used to host a show on CBC radio and sometimes uh, the director's talking in your ear and the guest says something that has the shape of a joke yeah. no, 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 no. and you go, ha ha. And then you realize, Oh crap. What did I just consent to? I didn't hear what they actually said. Yeah. And every once in a while I would really get laughing and the, my colleagues would say, Oh, you did your real laugh that time. Oh, right. And so, so I knew that was there. I mean, I'm sure you have a polite laugh and a helpless laugh. Yep. And those are very different things. The other, so that's one thing that was really interesting to me was that social laughter is most of our laughter. Talking about being in a pack, laughter is how we say, I'm with you. I'm on your side. I get you. We share a reference. We share a point of view. Um, we care about each other. The other thing that was really interesting was uh, the brain science of what happens in your brain when you get a joke and why you enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And... They've studied what's going on, which centers in your brain fire and when, when you get a joke. So first there's the punchline or the twist and you go, oh, oh, wait, something's changed. And then like a third of a second later, and they've measured this down to thousands of a second, you figure it out and you get a little endorphin rush. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's exactly the same way a musician reacts when they hear music that they love or People who do, I don't know if you do cryptic crosswords. No. But when you do a cryptic crossword, you don't 70% get a clue. You don't have it. You don't have it. You don't have it. Oh, oh, it's that. And it's exactly the same pleasure is in figuring it out. 
Mm-hmm. And so a joke gives us a little puzzle to figure out. And when we get it, same way we get a crossword puzzle, we get a squirt of endorphins. And getting back to evolution, if you can reward yourself for figuring it out as a species, you're going to do a lot better. Right. Uh, and so, you know, there's all this stuff about um, a laughter will lower your blood pressure and it'll slow your heart rate. And um, so will watching a horror movie that you like. Right. So will a bunch of other tense experiences that you enjoy. So the two things that really struck me were that our laughter is mostly social and that we've, we've wired ourselves, we've taught ourselves that jokes, crossword puzzles, pieces of music, that's our reward for figuring it out. And that may be, that may answer the question, why is this good for us? Right. So you talked to a lot of different people for the documentary across, you know, a multitude of professions. Were there any ideas that kind of juxtaposed each other where you went, that's not, that's not the belief of this other person or this other group of people. They actually argue the opposite. Um, there's a, there's a primatologist named Jan van Hoof, who is the most delightful guest, this 74 year old. He's the one who talked like this. It's yeah, just yeah, fun. Great. The chimps are playing for fun. He was great. And he thinks that laughter and smiling didn't evolve as the same thing. Oh, wow. That laughter comes from a play signal, but smiling comes from a fear signal like submission. Mm-hmm. So he thought those two things, even though in languages like French, where we have rear and surrear, they're connected. A lot of languages do that. He thinks they're separate streams. The woman who studied the chimps and the bonobos, Marina Davila Ross, said, I've studied them for years and I've never seen that. That was one little controversy. The biggest conflict, actually, was when I got into theories of humor, and there are kind of three groups, like early on. Uh, humor was just superiority in the in the Bible. Um, it's God laughing at lesser gods or people who are who are misbehaving and punished. Then there's like people like Freud thought that laughter was about release, which mm-hmm. is kind of what we've been talking about. And then in the like the 18th century, uh, incongruity theory. So smashing together ideas that don't belong together, um, creating a cognitive shift, like a change in someone's thinking. And I kind of thought. When I started talking to stand-ups, that's the way they would describe a joke was according to this, you set something in play and then you smash it against something different. And none of the comics I talk to think about jokes that way. Right. Almost everybody use basically the structure that you talked about, which is first, here's the reality and let's make sure we're on the same page. And then here's my take. And then here's me going further out on that limb. Yeah. And so it wasn't about uh, incongruity. It was more about shifting the lens on something you already know. Right. Or something you've walked past and never noticed or something you've seen and never seen that way. And that wasn't. And, you know, I I couldn't use this section, but uh, the kind of hero of the documentary is this neuroscientist, Sophie Scott. And she said, all these academic theories of humor are wrong because they don't explain whether something is going to be funny. They only guess why it was funny. Right. After the fact. And she thinks it's much more a social thing and that it's much more about connection and relatability. So the biggest surprise to me was once I talked to my theorists, talked to the guy about benign violation, I thought, okay, that's. That sounds like he talked to a lot of comics. He set up a little comedy club as an experiment. Right. Um, that's where the comics are going to live. And it was like, nope. Everybody was like, there's a doorway and I bring you in and then I turn you around and show you the room. And now we're together in this new way of seeing things. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. The reason why I asked that question as well is because I, I sometimes struggle with the concept of surprise. You know, like that seems to be a big thing. I take you down this road and yep. I cut a hard left and oh my God, we didn't see that coming and we laugh. But I, I've also, you know, done it myself and I've seen other comedians do it or shows do it where we almost know how the person is going to react. We almost yeah. know what the end of the story is, but you still want the person to deliver it anyway, or you still want the scene to unfold exactly how you know yeah. it's going to unfold. And Seinfeld's a great example. Like, you know, George's character. So, you know, when this thing happens, he's not going to be happy. And you're, you're, yeah. you're waiting to see that, but you already know, you know what I mean? Like it's to me, I always found that fascinating because I always, when I first started stand up, 
everything was a left field for me. I da 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 da. Well, um, you know, that, he was driving the bus, you know, and da 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 da. You know, like it, it was always that I have to surprise you at the end. And then yeah. later I realized sometimes you can take them exactly where they think they're going and they'll still laugh. And that to me is a real phenomenon. Yeah. And in improv, they say, um, do the obvious thing. Right. Like I had to, I have had to learn over the years in improv, not don't, don't try to be clever right now. You're in this thing. Just go hard at it. And that I think is why George Costanza makes me laugh is how hard it's like, yeah, he's not going to be happy, but that level of crazy unhappiness, it's like, oh, you are fully in this. But surprise to me is, is a part of jokes. There has to be, some people call it a cognitive shift. Some people call it a psychological shift, but my other holy crap moment was the Lambert Decker's experiment, which gets Mm -hmm. mentioned in the documentary Mm -hmm. where they gave people, they didn't tell them it was a, it was a study about laughing. They just said, lift this weight and they would lift the 10 pound weight. Okay. Now move over, lift the next weight, 10 pounds, lift the next weight, 10 pounds. And then the last one, the fifth one would be half a pound or a hundred pounds. And people would start laughing. Yeah. Like just, just the surprise of it. There's a great video of, like a sniper in Serbia and she's training her rifle and the plaster behind her explodes and she's just almost been shot. And she turns to the camera and starts laughing. Wow. And I, I think, I think surprise is part of it, but sometimes it, maybe it's the depth of the reaction. Maybe it's how hard you go. Maybe when they're in the world where you're doing a punchline and you do the 15th tag, like maybe the degree of commitment yeah. or the volume or the, the feeling may, maybe yeah. that can be the surprise. Like that's still the, the out of the ordinary thing. Do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. It's that minutia in terms of what level will you go to? I thought you were going to go to 10. I knew you'd react that way and you'd be angry at a 10, but you brought it to 50 and I didn't expect it to go to 50. So maybe you're right. There's still an element of surprise within, within this area that we knew, we knew we were going to end up and we want you to take us there. That's the thing I was always amazed by that. No, you want me to say that next thing. You even know I'm going to say this next thing. If I've already set it up earlier with a scenario and how I feel about a certain thing, when I bring you to a similar scenario, you already know. I'm now angry at the customer service person who, you know, on the airline or whatever it is. And now you're, oh, here we go. He's going to give it, you know, to this person. So I do find that fascinating for sure. Yeah. I always wonder what, um, what it's like for comics who have golden bits like that, like Jim Gaffigan with um, Hot Pockets yeah, or yeah. Russell Peters or somebody's going to hurt, get hurt. The, and, and, and I've seen a dark side of that. Like I've seen uh comics with big tv shows in the states who i went to see in vegas and they do like 55 minutes of okay and then they pull out the dentist bit and the place falls down and everybody loves it and i didn't i didn't like that but it's i wonder what it's like for people whose material is that deep like steve martin said in his book he didn't handle it well he should have those arena tours he should have just treated like a party but he was thinking of himself as an artist and he wasn't having fun with people yelling back the punchlines. But yeah, yeah, I, I understand that. It's like, and I've heard other comedians say that you almost, you almost fall on a crutch because you know, you've got those two or three bits in your back pocket that you can unleash towards the end. And so yeah. if the first 45 is not great. Who cares? I'm going to bring it all home <laughs> with these last 15, which is not what people paid for. People didn't yeah. pay to see, we're going to go see a band and they're only going to play the songs we know and love. <laughs> At the last 15 minutes, the rest of it's all going to be stuff we have never heard and don't care about. Yeah. Um, and, and I think you're right. It's an interesting relationship with your material for for a comedian or an artist, I think, is to what, what am I? Tr- what's the goal tonight? What am I trying to do? How do I entertain these people, but also make myself happy and feel like I I held true to myself and what I wanted to do? And I think. I know Steve Martin did struggle with that a lot in his book, Born Standing Up. There was a lot of talk of, you know, playing these football arenas, which to me is insane to be just yeah. standing there in a white suit on a stage. And I'm like, eh, too wild and crazy. Yeah. Like, whatever. It's, it's, yeah. But he would go back to a hotel room by himself and eat, you know, shrimp cocktail. Like, it was just such an isolating thing for him to go, what, what's all this for? You know, so I, yeah. I do find that fascinating. I saw an interview with um, Dane Cook a little while ago who, I didn't love, and I, I saw bits of it and thought it isn't for me. Um, but he was just bewildered. He didn't he didn't know why everybody in the comedy world hated him. He's like just a guy trying to do my thing. Mm-hmm. Like why? What's what's the what's? It was really interesting to see him. In in his view, he just doesn't know what he did wrong. 
Interesting. Yeah, really interesting. You know, his, his shouty shows in arenas. But also, too, the sad, the scary thing for comedians and why I think evolution is so important for anyone who's an artist, but especially for comedians, is that those bits that you've relied on for a long time, they will go away. At some point, yeah. you will say that joke and it just will not hit the weight. And it's come up on the podcast numerous times with comedians that it's almost like something on the vine and eventually it will start to rot. And if you don't have right. something to replace it, that bit that used to bring the house down, you know, it will not age well and eventually it will just go away and you're left with this big, massive hole that you used to be yeah. able to rely on. So it eventually it becomes your enemy at some point. So you have huh. to constantly keep generating something new. And I think now with the new pressure to have a new hour every year and have a new comedy special every year, those things have changed the Internet. People can put your material up right away. You just did it in Cleveland. The people who you're going to see the next night in Boston have already seen that. So uh, we hope you get a new hour by the time you get to Boston, you know, two nights later, because yeah. someone put it up on the, you know, it's almost this race to come up with new ideas and get it out there. Yeah. Also, before another comedian comes out with a similar premise. And so there's all this pressure now that I don't think comedians had to deal with back in the 70s yeah. and 80s. You know, you could take the same act and travel around for for years and years and, you know, people were never going to yeah. know the difference. You know, do you think that it's just the audience and the world um, that makes the material age out? Or do you think at some point the comic is doing like a pale photocopy of the, yes. of the energy of the original? Yeah, that's what I think. I think eventually you're not the same person you were when you came up with this bit. You've changed, yeah. you've grown, you've evolved. And I think it does combine with the first thing you said, which is society has changed. And that thing you used to say that you was totally cool to say is not as cool to say anymore. Like if you watch Delirious now, Eddie Murphy's classic, you know, you look oh, at that yeah. now and you're like, whoa, like he comes out of the <laughs> gate with some stuff and you're like, Oh, what did he just say? like that's it's crazy edgy now you know accidentally it, it's actually yeah. edgy now but back then it was just you know so things go away and if he was, he was still out touring now still trying to do those bits it's like you know there'd be some people who were pretty upset so the world changes but also you as a performer i think you change and you're right you don't deliver that bit the same way you used to you know when you're a single guy and you're talking about dating and hey and all of a sudden you're in a relationship and married it's pretty hard to do that single material and really own it and really, you know, get into yeah. it. You're, you're not that guy anymore. You know? I, yeah. It's I, like I, you're I, almost doing, you're doing somebody else's material now. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like you're on the outside looking in on your old life and yeah, it'll still get a laugh, but it just yeah. it doesn't have the same impact that uh, I think you, yeah. you know, you would, it had back in the day um, with regards to, to laughter in general, do, do you, cause it's interesting you know, as a comedian and you were in improv and stuff and, and produce comedy shows. It's like, for people who make laughter for a living, really, we make stuff that's funny that we hope generates laughter. I didn't really know much about it, you know? When, so when I would listen to the doc, yeah. I was like, wow, this is a whole world. I, I, I should know more about this, clearly, <laughs> since I, yeah. try, I try to make this stuff. Did you feel that way, too? Absolutely. Um, most of laughter, most of what we talked about is not about humor. Right. Like, that was the hard, that was the moment that I had to grip my teeth. And they say, you know, you have to kill your babies. That was like, mm -hmm. I just wrote to the producer and said, there's no way we can do 60 pages. It's about, we have about 35. I'm going to have to drop all the stuff about humor. Because I thought, I thought the Venn diagram was pretty close. And it's like, nope, humor is a small part of laughter. Mm -hmm. Laughter is like us getting a reward for getting it, us affirming to the tribe that that we have affection for them um and so laughter kind of as uh, sophie scott says in the documentary has been hiding in plain sight saying you've not really seen anything like me before mm -hmm. and laughter has some properties that it's one of the only things that if you watch somebody on us there's that spanish video of the one guy with the high-pitched laugh really cracking up yeah it will make you laugh even if you have no idea what he's saying Right. That laughter more than humor transcends context. And yeah. Um, three, I lost the question. No, all good. Just that like, did, did you, did you really feel like I realized I don't know a lot about the concept of laughter. It was just yeah. kind of, Oh, I, I know how to write a joke and I think I know what's yeah. funny and what I find funny and what maybe lots of other people will find funny, but I didn't really know any about the science of laughter per se. I knew yeah. it was contagious. Didn't know why. Didn't know where it evolved from. And, and yeah. so I learned a lot, but I, I, just for yourself, did you, did you feel like you kind of, it opened up your eyes in a lot of ways to just, the yeah, I'm much more aware of when and how and why I laugh now. Right. Like the part of me that lives too much in my head will half a second later go social. Right. Um, 
polite laughter uh, and the moments where you're and the moments uh, the moments that are helpless. I just I know how unique that is and I treasure it so much more Mm -hmm. and remember it so much more warmly. Uh, I had one just it doesn't happen often and it doesn't uh, happen often in the in the context of jokes. So. I'm much more aware of the different ways and the different reasons I laugh. And when I see, when I'm laughing at a comic, I think I just feel it much more deeply now, now that I've thought so much about how it's connective and how it helps us feel less alone, especially now. Um, I was talking to Ivan Decker and he recommended Ryan Hamilton, who I haven't yeah. hadn't heard of. Ryan's who's funny. great. Yeah. And that's why, you know, there's a reason we go, oh, you've got to see this. You've got like why we want to share it. But his bit about a hot air balloon being made of wicker and you don't trust wicker when it's sitting on your porch. <laughs> and so you take this wicker thing, you go up in the wicker basket and you attach it to a flamethrower. And those observations that I've always loved in comedy, I, 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 they're, they're even more precious to me now. Like I still remember talking about Seinfeld. The first bit of stand-up that really got me was him talking about how pajamas look like a business suit because they button up and they've got the collar. And there's a reason that stayed with me for 30 some years. Yep. You know, because I think it, so the short answer, if, if I'm still capable of that is I, I notice my own laughter more. I appreciate it more, but also when a comic hits that chord with me, I just mark that moment. I just live in it and love it and remember it even more. It's not like a musician playing a piece of music that I love, which I love in its own way. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, something deeper just happened there. And this is something that you and others talked about in the doc is the feeling is that feeling of connection and recognition and belonging. And so uh, I now watch comedy with more enjoyment, I think. Interesting. That's great. What, and what a great gift that is. Oh, yeah. Put all that work into something and get that out of it at the end of the day. Um, what I've always felt when people ask me what I do as a comedian, and I go, you know, you can say you make people laugh, but I always feel like my job, first and foremost, is to notice things. Is yes, to, yes. And more time in the mundane minutiae of everyday life that other people just take for granted and gloss over. And I think that's what you were saying about Ryan Hamilton's bit about the wicker basket. You've seen that a million times and there was something in an, uh, innately in your mind that was yeah. ruminating with this thing. But then this person says it in a comedic way and it just unleashes all these things that I think were already in there that we already. You're right. I've seen that a million times. Or how come I never ever put it that way or framed it that way? Right. It's almost yeah. this. And you're right. It's been right under your nose the whole time. And that's yeah. what I feel like. We're almost comedians or people in lab coats with you know microscopes and we're just taking different elements of life and putting them on slides and looking here real quick oh yeah look at this and we change the lens on this and we and that's what we do to try and find that little angle that just presents this thing people see every day but you just frame it differently and people go oh yeah that's right that's me that's my dad that's i grew up like that you know that's what i think the big reveal is in a way yeah i don't know what the what the pitch process is like at 22 but when i was um running a sketch show the every sketch began with us asking ourselves is this a thing Right. Is it just me who hates when hockey fans yell, shoot the puck? Right. And you ask around and people go, yes. And then, so, you know, I ended up writing this sketch where um, uh, Andrew Ference from the Oilers is thanking fans for telling him to shoot the puck. Cause nice. otherwise I'm out there. I have no idea. But no first, idea. you know, it begins with, um, Oh, I've just this little grit of sand in my in my life just popped up. I'm waiting in a coffee line and I'm pissed off at those people. And the opportunity to I mean, if you're George Costanza, you live in frustration if you're Larry David. But if you're if you're stand up, if you're writing sketches, that's fodder. You get to say you get to reach out and say, is it just me? Right. And when it isn't like that's to me, that's the best moment. Like, I don't know. I don't know for you what the best from thinking of a maybe joke to delivering it on stage to, to me, the best moment is when you do it for the first time and you hear the laugh. And that laugh is saying, guess what? It's not just you. 
Right. There's a commonality to it. We do the same thing in our show. Like, I had this experience, and you kind of send it out to the room, and anybody else, people are like, oh, dude, yeah, that yeah. is a thing. And then you realize, okay, maybe we got something there. It's not just me. Yeah. And again, it's sort of back to that same thing of connectivity and feeling like. And the other thing I've realized, and I didn't understand it at first, because musicians talk about it often. I don't know if you've heard this before, but just the concept of the more you go inward, the more universal it becomes. Yeah. You know, that concept of really open up your chest plate and go inside and examine your own insecurities and anxieties. And when you have the vulnerability and courage to share those, you will find that you will find a universal audience with all those things you had really held deeply within you that everyone else has the same anxieties and thoughts and insecurities. And and when I really get into that, even when I'm writing my own stuff, that holds true every single time. I don't know what your experience has been with that, with producing something or some work and really having to go inside yourself in some capacity. Yeah, it's all um, self-awareness and specificity will, will get you much farther than trying to make a clever observation. I, I agree. Think. And I like think I too, used to, go ahead, sorry. Oh, um, can I swear? Oh, of course. Yes. Um, we used to always ask uh, writing sketches, who's the asshole in the story. Right. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, if you, if you don't know, then let's get deeper into why, into why this, why this stuck with you. Sorry. What were you going to say? No, I was just going to say, I, I, I really feel that Mike McDonald, the late, great Mike McDonald, yeah. the studious Canadian, uh, the King of comedy here in Canada, I was at a workshop in Edmonton years ago at the old Yuck Yucks there. And, and uh, during this workshop he was conducting, he asked everyone, hey, if you have a bit that you're working on that you can't get to work, why don't you fire it out to the room and we can all help you out with it, you know? And it was done in a real kind way and gentle way. So someone had a bit and they said that what they thought was the punchline and they said it and no one laughed. And Mike asked this question. He said, where did you expect us to laugh? And then the rest of the comedians all laughed at that. They thought, you know, Mike was slamming this guy. And Mike yeah. went, no, 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 no. He goes, I, I'm not slamming you. Thank you for sharing your your thing, your idea. Yeah. But I'm asking you, do you know where the laugh is here? Because if you don't know where it is, the audience doesn't know where it is. Huh. And so it was really important to make sure that you know when I say this or I do that face, that's where the laugh is, as opposed to just writing and hoping that somewhere along the way, there'll be something in that to laugh at, you know, like be very precise, be very calculated. And I remember that that was my first year in comedy, just I was trying to absorb as much as I could. And I thought it was a great lesson. Do you know where it is? And if you don't know yeah. where it is, there's a good chance they don't know where it is. Yeah. I mean, it's a big, it's a big trust position being a comic. Like I really... I was saying, I like watching a comic come out and thinking, is this going to be okay? Mm -hmm. Because if you're not speaking for me and if you're not speaking to me, you're going to lose me really fast. And that's why I think comedy death is so ugly because the audience is going, nope. Yeah. Either your, your, whatever your observations, your perspective, I'm rejecting it because you didn't create the space to include me. Right. Yeah, you, you invited me to a party and made none of the food that I like. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tofurkey is not what was promised. I was told there would be chicken wings, and I do not see any chicken wings here. Yeah. I should be putting on my jacket and shoes and heading to a chicken wing joint. And uh, <laughs> uh, goodbye. <laughs> I bid you adieu. Um, so, uh, getting ready to wrap this thing up. What is next for you? What, what, what's, is there another project now that's going to be on the burner or some ideas that you want to, you want to kind of attack at some point? Um, I am about to start working on a podcast about Edmonton's uh, squalid history. If you walk around the city, you see all these signs and parks of the city's pioneers and they were just violent money grabbing white guys. And so uh, a friend and I have got some funding for a podcast that will kind of peel back the layers of, okay, this ground that you're standing on, which the sign of the city pioneer, we're going to tell you the story behind it. That's one thing. Nice. Um, Happy to say I've got another documentary just about to launch in that is very different. Uh, It is about Lloyd Percival. Do you know him? The hockey. So Lloyd Percival was, a a coach and kind of fitness guru who was way ahead of his time in the forties and fifties. He came from, uh, I think he came from money in Toronto. So the NHL guys who were all working class wanted nothing to do with this guy, but he was all about cross training, dry land training. He was 
decades ahead of his time. Nobody in the NHL would give him a listen. There was an article in 1948 in McLean's. I know this because I printed it this morning. Is everyone in sports crazy except Lloyd Percival? Wow. So he wrote this book that I'm going to hold up now to you called The Hockey Handbook. Oh, that doesn't work with my screen. Oh, yeah, that's, anyway, that's okay. it's called The Hockey Handbook. Somehow it got to Russia. And the Russians started to take it seriously in the 60s. So when they showed up in the 70s, Using these methods. So Lloyd Percival lived until 73. So he saw the Russians create a sensation by bringing over his methods and then, and then died in 73. So, um, I mean, we're really hoping we can get like maybe Trechak or somebody to talk about that. Um, I still do little bits of, um, little bits of comedy writing. I pitch stuff to the Beaverton, which is fun. Cool. Just a way of getting getting those little observations and frustrations out. Like yeah. writing those headlines is it's like a haiku. You tune it so many times. Yep. So podcast, a documentary, a few little bits. Like I've got enough going that I'll be interested and engaged for a while. Awesome. Uh, just waiting for the world to open. Awesome. Awesome. And where can folks find this fantastic documentary on laughter? Where can that be found? Um. It's on the Ideas website, CBC Radio Ideas. It's called Laughing Matters. Mm-hmm. And it's on a bunch of podcast platforms. And I can send you a link if you maybe you can post it in the comments or something. Sure. sure. Um, I don't think we've I don't think we've completely spoiled it. No, I don't by think giving so. away the giving no. away the holy crap moments. Like there's there's a lot of there was so much stuff. Yeah. Like it could have been, it could have been three hours. It wouldn't have been as good. A, a smart person said, no, do a good one hour. Yeah. Yeah. Leave them um, wanting more. Leave them wanting more. They say in comedy. Yeah. And I, I had the pleasure of, I don't know if you have much chance to listen back to stuff, but so this came out uh, the day after the election in the States, which mm-hmm. was very smart on behalf of the producer. And I had a lot of 2 AM edit sessions where you think the one hour documentary is done and then there's a problem a minute from the end. So you fix it and save it and listen to the hour again. And now it's three in the morning. So it was, it was a bit of a blur near the end. And then on the 28th, they played it again. And I got to listen to it with six weeks of separation Mm -hmm. and just appreciated. Oh yeah. Because of the pandemic, I had time to do a lot of research with interesting people and found it. Yeah. I really, I, I actually, I rarely say this about things I've done. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was fantastic, man. I got to say, job well done. Oh, thanks. Uh, I learned a ton. It was entertaining. Uh, so many different perspectives. And, and I think, yeah, for folks who have an interest in that and, and and behavior and why we do the things we do, I think that's a that's a great rabbit hole to go down. So well done, sir. Well, thank you for, um, I think you appear in the documentary for about 30 seconds at the end, but we did an hour. We did an hour about joke structure and the conditions for laughter in comedy clubs and I'm sure we solved the problems of the world in life philosophies. Like like two old men at a Tim Hortons solving the world's <laughs> problems. I don't know why they just don't dot dot dot. Yeah. And then it's what? done. You know? Oh, those oh look, there's have you seen the ads where the guy is um taking the people into the store that are turning into their parents? Yes, yes. Oh god, the moment that kills me in that is where the guy with blue hair walks by and he goes, We all see it. We all see it. <laughs> and that yeah. That's, so that, good that's me, I'm the cranky parent. Good comedy is good comedy. Well, thanks so much for this, Peter. I really appreciate it. It was a great chat. All the best to you in the new year. And uh, good, good luck with those future projects. Looking forward to seeing them and hearing them. Thanks, man. I'm, I break, break a leg in the coming season, and I, I look forward to seeing what you do next. And uh, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. I, I hope this. Uh, I hope I wasn't too tangenty. No, no, it was great. It was fantastic. It's exactly what I wanted, so. Awesome. So now I've just got some drinks waiting for me in the cabana, so I'm going to split. Because <laughs> you got a scuba lesson lined up, so good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Great chat, man. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye.